Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Mary, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me. Um, so help me understand why you pick abortion, something that, like, it's a very benign topic that no one cares about. So what made you get into this topic <laughs> that no one cares about? Well, I mean, I think it was because there wasn't a lot of history being done. Um, so when I was actually a, a law student, I was taking a legal history course that was sort of, you know, 20th century. And one of the things we were studying was sort of whether social movements, right, left and anywhere else could use law to change society or whether, in fact, that was sort of a hollow hope. And we read lots of books on it. And I was expecting that we would read a book on Roe v. Wade, because it seemed that would be one of the kind of quintessential case studies you'd have to do. And we we didn't. And so I went to office hours and asked my professor why. And he said, well, you know, there really aren't a lot of books on the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of history of the lead up to it, but not really much on what happened next. And I just honestly, I was just curious, I think, because I wanted to know. And this is an area where most most writing is about what ought to happen and not what, you know, has happened or why anything has happened. So so I think I, I just was really fascinated by that. And it was, you know, good for me professionally, too, again, because not many people were, were really looking at it. So how, how do you go through determining what has happened? It's the question I ask a lot of historians on the show is, you know, how do you decipher, you know, what we know, what we think we know, what we're kind of speculating on? Like, was there, is there a lot of material there to unpack or is it pretty much yeah. a uh, just like rulings and stuff that you're looking through? No, there's definitely a lot more than that, because obviously abortion has, you know, pretty quickly became a political issue even before Roe v. Wade. So um, that means there are a lot of players involved, right? So not just lawyers and courts, but kind of social movement organizations. So you're looking through their papers and their meeting minutes and their strategy memoranda, um, you know, politicians, right? So like state legislators, federal lawmakers, um, presidents, um, kind of what they were thinking behind the scenes. Um, and, and you know, and then, of course, kind of published sources too, like newspapers to get a sense of what, what you know, reporters across the ideological spectrum were making of whatever was happening at the time. So there's a lot to sift through. I mean, especially because a lot of this is recent history. So a lot of the documents actually survive. I mean, I would say in general, in this context, it's harder to get good material either on organizations representing people of color or conservative organizations, because for a variety of reasons, most university collections have tended to kind of focus in the past on what amount to basically left-leaning, predominantly white organizations. So left-leaning, not predominantly white organizations are underrepresented and so are conservative organizations. So I've always had to kind of work yeah. harder to find that material um, because, I mean, I knew it was important, but I mean, I was often then looking for it in in weird places or getting it from individuals who are involved in the struggles or, you know, not, in other words, not being able to sit in like comfy air conditioned archives, you know, right. uh, taking photos. Yeah. We had on Dr. Caroline Heldman a week or two ago now. Um, and one of the things that we were chatting about with her was, um, 
and I have the book laying around here somewhere. It's a critical race theory book, and it, it argues in that book that essentially, um, I think it's Brown versus uh, Board of Education was overturned in in part because of external forces, the Cold War, international pressure, and, and so the the motivation there is not exactly what the average American would think it was at the time, and even looking back now. Uh, and she seemed to kind of loosely agree that there is there's some there's some there there. When you think about something like Roe v. Wade, um, it, why do we think, or do you, at least you think, at least that it was affirmed on one side and then overturned later on? Is it social pressure? Is it just the makeup of the courts? Um, how do we evaluate those type of uh, decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think that the story is probably different um, for Roe and for the Dobbs decision, um, in part because I, I don't think as much as abortion was a political issue before the Roe decision came down, it, it wasn't in the same way it became later. Um, so I think in, in 1973, if you're you're in the papers of the justices, I think um, Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion, pretty clearly seemed to think that popular opinion um, supported uh, legalizing, you know, most abortions and, you know, that most Americans believed abortion was a decision between a woman and her doctor. And also he seemed to be responding to um, the demands of his colleagues who were pushing for a kind of more sweeping ruling than the one he had initially been envisaging. Um but I think, too, there there was a sense, I mean, Roe, the original Roe, if you read it, was pretty clearly not supposed to be about responding to social movements. There are various points where the court um, both kind of pretty readily dismisses arguments made by the pro-life or anti-abortion movement and kind of makes fun of feminist arguments that were being made by social movements at the time, too. So I think this was the court thinking that there was a way to kind of create a constitutional outcome that matched popular opinion and that would kind of help de-escalate what was already a pretty intense conflict about abortion. I think if you look at Dobbs, the politics were pretty different in part because over time, the pro-life movement, which had really has historically been about the recognition of fetal rights and fetal personhood going back to the 60s, realized that that was not, that fetal personhood wasn't going to be a possibility in the near term and pivoted to getting rid of Roe through influencing Supreme Court confirmations. And that that promise, right, the idea that getting Republicans elected would mean the right kind of justices who would reverse Roe became the kind of linchpin of the relationship between pro-life voters and the GOP, which was always a troubled relationship and I think in some ways still is in, in, in some aspects. But that that meant, I think, that the Dobbs ruling came on the heels of a shift in party politics, right? Abortion was not always a partisan issue. Um, a shift in the way the, the legal community works. There was a conservative legal movement formed in the 80s that then aligned with the pro-life or anti-abortion movement a little bit later, like the late 80s and early 90s. And I think even a shift in what some conservative voters thought was needed in, in a Supreme Court justice. So not just a justice who was an originalist or a textualist, but a justice who was sort of not an institutionalist, right? Someone whose priorities were not conserving the reputation or legitimacy of a court, but someone who would do what they thought was the right thing interpretively, regardless of the consequences. 
So I, I think Dobbs was a product of a lot of those larger shifts um, that followed the Roe decision. So, I mean, I think they, they both, I, as a historian, I tend to think almost every <laughs> court decision on a major ruling has politics to it. Uh, but but I think the politics of the two were pretty different. Okay. And help me un, uh, work through these two things. So on one hand, you talked about um, the original Roe and, you know, and kind of how on some level they, they at least perceive as popular opinion. How much should that go into, if at all, a Supreme Court decision? And then two, at the end there, you talked about the reputation of the court. This also is is a question of of who who are, who measures the reputation of the court. And so, when I think about Supreme Court rulings as a high school graduate, no 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 legal training whatsoever. So um, hmm. it's like, hmm, popular opinion doesn't seem to be one of the things they should consider. Although I, I'm quite, I, I do believe that that's what they consider. But then casting it, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but but the, these these discussion points of popular opinion and reputation. It's like, well. If the if the court should be concerned about popular opinion, okay, that's one thing. But then that doesn't mean that the popular opinion and the reputation are the same thing, because reputation could come from you know peers, international, whatever. So, yeah. so what are those two things? How much should those influence the court? Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, right, the court is not supposed to be political, right? The court is supposed to be interpreting the law and not making policy. Uh, on the other hand, if the court is political and not admitting that it's political, then that's even worse because then you have, and I think that's been an, an anxiety across the ideological spectrum going back for a while. Because There's um, a famous Yale scholar, um, Alexander Bickel, who called this, you know, the counter-majoritarian nightmare, right? The idea that you would have a court that was political, that was not accountable, where the justices had lifetime appointments, could never really be realistically never be impeached. There's never been a Supreme Court justice removed from office in American history that effectively was making policy. So I think that the tension and where you see people's vision of the court or support for the court wavering is when they think the court is political. And so do I think it matters, you know, in a way, yes, because if people, if enough Americans lose faith in the court as an institution, that's really bad for our democracy, right? We tend to think in general that it's bad when people lose faith in our institutions and in our democracy. And if enough people think of the court as just, you know, partisans and robes, and the court has to intervene to settle some kind of major dispute, like the legitimacy of an election, and a large percentage of Americans don't trust the court anymore, that's that's really a problem. So I think on the one hand, obviously, the court is not supposed to be thinking about its popularity when it reaches rulings. But I do think people on the court do have to be stewards of the institution. And if they don't care about that at all, it's also a problem. So I, I think it's, it's a difficult um, balance. And, and I, I think it also depends, my answer would also probably depend on the extent to which judges can be apolitical, right? Mm. I mean, if you if you really believe judges can completely rise above politics and, and focus entirely on the meanings of text and history, you would feel a lot better saying judges can be counter-majoritarian. I'm suspicious of that in part because I'm a historian, right? So when judges say, you know, we can just discern the meaning of, the you know, the Second Amendment in 1789, when historians who are professionally trained, the justices are not, the justices clerks are not, are still fighting about that. 
I'm suspicious of that. That feels kind of like you're you're taking a messy, complicated thing and telling me it's like, you know, a candy machine where you put in a quarter and get out a gumball, which is not how history tends to work. Really on either side, right? I mean, you, you, you can hear justices on either side making history into something I don't think it is. So because of that, I'm, I'm more suspicious that any justice is above politics. And if you believe that, then these arguments that the justices shouldn't care about what anybody else thinks start to feel messier, because then essentially you're saying the justices are pretending to be historians, they're pretending to be above politics when that's impossible. And if it is impossible, then how much they should care about politics gets complicated. Yeah, I mean... I think they're all political because they're they're humans. Um, you know, right. And and but they're like any human. You're going to have a a list of priorities that that influence decisions. Mm-hmm. So for some, they might think just take abortion. It might be important to them, but it's not as important as being scoured through the media for weeks and days on the end. So they they might vote against it, or for them it might right. be. So so you can see how it's it's we. I think the outsiders want to put this flat. Well. This they did this, therefore we understand. They think like this, and I think that's where it gets messy because they're humans and they're going to have different different priorities depending on the, the ruling and how the last one is perceived and how their colleagues. And so it's kind of a oh, yeah. a constant evolution, if you will, for for each justice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think I, I tend to cash out on this and thinking that you know we should probably have the courts doing somewhat less than they do. Like it feels it feels weird to me that. Um, you know, a lot <laughs> that we, we have to care so much about the politics of individual justices. So I, I think it may, it, especially when it comes to constitutional law, lots of, you know, state legislators, members of Congress, lots of people swear oaths to uphold the Constitution. And yet it seems like we live in a culture where we only care about what the Supreme Court justices think about the Constitution. And that mm-hmm. seems wrong to me, right? I mean, it seems yeah. that other people should have, and I mean, you, you you see this in some spaces now, right, where you see state constitutions kind of getting a second look, and that that's a, really, again, across the ideological spectrum. You see progressive states doing this with abortion. You see um, some conservative states doing this with the Second Amendment. You see states looking, again, at what the right to vote means, but I think it's it's good to have it, it's it's not great when your a lot of your constitutional tradition rests on like what Brett Kavanaugh really thinks today, right? Like that yeah. just doesn't feel right to me. You know, that's well, not not what, what what kind of culture you necessarily want to have. Yeah, and it's a struggle for me because um, um, as as the non-historian, um, but thinking about how the original country was set up, the proximity that, that was there. And then now how, you know, you're in California, I'm in Texas. We're a long ways away. We'll probably never cross paths except for on a Zoom or a, a tweet or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And you start to think about the the practical, um, if you were to take a Nancy Pelosi and a Ted Cruz or, 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 you know, two politicians, it's like, well, they are from two different worlds and they're two different characters in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, the people of, I'm not sure people in Texas like Ted Cruz, but the people of California probably generally like, don't like Ted Cruz. The people of Texas probably generally like Nancy Pelosi. Um, and so, but but that's kind of a larger body, kind of goes in there. They're in the House and Cong- in the Senate, I get that. But okay, so there's kind of this theoretical spread out across the country that you're kind of getting. But the Supreme Court, you get the president, and depending on how the Senate's, you know, if the Senate allows, allows it to happen, they just kind of push those folks up in there. And then you kind of hope, to your point earlier about the voters, 
that they vote the way that you thought they were going to vote when you voted for the guy yeah. who was going to appoint them. And it's a really weird system, especially with a country as diverse as ours. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I think that's that's especially true on an issue by issue basis. Right. So, I mean, if you think, for example, like um, that's one of the reasons I think ballot initiatives are cool. So, for example, everyone thinks California is like the most left of all the states. And yet California had a vote years ago banning affirmative action because it went directly to voters and voters were like, we don't like affirmative action. Um, you know, conversely, on abortion, right, or Medicaid expansion, you can go to conservative states and ask them things like, do you want no rape or incest exceptions to your abortion ban? And you'll get very conservative states saying, no, we don't. Like, if you just separate out the issue. But then what happens, of course, most of the time is that you don't ask the voters, you just have them pick politicians. And the politicians don't always cater to the voters. They may cater to interest groups, to donors, to the voters who are the most passionate, maybe, right? Not the largest number of voters. So direct democracy is complicated too, but I think it can be a good way to kind of circumvent that that problem, right? Which is that politicians don't always represent voters, especially when voters who may generally, you know, lean Democratic or, or Republican don't feel that way on a specific issue, which happens, you know, quite a bit, right? I mean, voters are complicated people, even if they generally have a partisan lean, that doesn't necessarily represent what they think on every single, you know, local, state and national issue all the time. Yeah. And I think it's on the, on the, on the elected official aspect of the problem that I see is if you take a, a voter who, you know, I don't care, right. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. I mean, you know, it's not really my favorite candidate, but I'm not going to vote for the opposite party. So therefore I vote for that person. If that person wins, there's almost no likelihood that you're really going to try to primary that candidate next time. So once they win the seat, even though it wasn't your favorite candidate, there's a very small percentage chance that there's going to be a serious primary contention to remove that person and whatever the term is. And so the, the problem is it kind of gets built in, which is you had this candidate who you didn't like, but they won the primary, so you voted for them. And then four years, six years, whatever it is, you're not really going to try to unseat them, so you can vote for them again. And then they win again, and they win again. And as they win, they get more more appointments, more seats, and et cetera, et cetera. And so it kind of, their power grows. And it all started uh-huh. with the fact that you voted for them at a kind of, eh, you know, vote for the, early, uh, the other party early on. And it's a really weird phenomenon that, 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 that yep. kind of happens. And so then you get people who are in there for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you never think to unseat them because they have a lot of power. And now they kind of represent your side more than they did. And so it's it's a compounding issue, it seems. Yeah, yeah. One of the problems, I think this just speaks to the problems with polarization. There's a, a lot of scholarship on what's called negative uh, and effective partisanship. And so the idea basically is that people are increasingly suspicious of the opposing party, right? And that means essentially that no matter really how much they don't like their own party's candidate, they're never going to vote for the opposing party candidate. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's a lot of voter dissatisfaction with the people (laughs) representing them, right? Because that means at times you get candidates you really, really don't like. Um, And, you know, people aren't willing to vote for independence sometimes either for the same reason, because they see that as potentially empowering this other party they really, really don't like. But it's, it's a pretty dysfunctional phenomenon because it means you have people who sometimes don't really represent anyone, right, whose views are not popular with anyone, who get to be, to your point, you know, very powerful politicians, simply because they're the standard bearer for your team, right? Mm -hmm. And I I don't think, I think that's, that's a problem 
you see with both parties, right? I mean, you, oh, yeah. you and you can hear it uh, when people talk about their own candidates. And I, I think, again, the problem in part is just that people aren't willing. Um, like, it's a good sign if people are willing, like if they're Democrats who vote for a moderate Republican or, you know, Republicans who vote for moderate Democrats, simply because there, then there's, there is that possibility for the politician in either party that they could lose, right? That there could be cross-party voting could be a thing. And that that's a form of, of kind of check that I don't think we've had for a while. Or, or vote third party with a with a smaller party that won't win, but it will, it's a party that aligns with your interests. Because yeah. if, if this to take the Green Party or the Constitutional Party or whatever it is, if enough people vote for that party, uh, the Republicans would look at the Constitutional Party and go, oh, okay, well, hmm, <laughs> we better run someone who's more constitutional next time if we want to get these votes back. Um, because yeah. that's what we got to do. Or, or the Green Party, more socialist. And so it, it's, it, but to your point, there, there's a weird, there's a poll out, I don't remember, a few years ago. It's like, you know, 95 or whatever, 95% of people can't stand politicians. And I always joked, they're always thinking of the other politician. They're not thinking of their own person. Because if they were, <laughs> they would vote differently, they'd act differently. And so it is quite a, it's a point of contention with me to say, um, people say, "Oh, I'm so tired of the system. We need we need um, uh, term limits." I'm like, "Well, just vote third party. Just vote for a third party, and and you you would fix so much of that." Well, you know, if I do that, then the, it's like, right? You don't you, you think that you want to solve a problem by instituting another issue, another a term limit, which might help on some level. But the crux is you're not willing to do the hard work now, which is might you might lose two or three elections so that you can get the right candidate in. Your 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 what you think the right candidate candidate is, and you know four, six, uh, eight, 10 years. And so um, the public doesn't seem to have the will to go through the process either. Yeah. And I think it's also just regardless of your politics, it's not a healthy system where a lot of our decisions are being shaped by hatred and dislike of the other people rather than like love and support for what your people are doing like that. That's bad. I mean, I don't care if you're conservative or progressive. If you hear, if you hear yourself thinking, like the reason I'm voting for this person is because I hate the other guy. Do you really want to be motivated by hate? I mean, that's just, I would hope the answer to that, whatever your, you know, religion or your politics would be no. Right. But I think that's where we are. So yeah, that's clearly something not, not something I think that's, that's good or that we should be doing. Okay. We'll get back to row now. <laughs> Sorry for that tangent there. No, um, okay. Trump. Trump ran, um, he appealed to, obviously, conservatives, evangelicals, on the basis that he would overturn Roe Wade, or at least point the right justices. I don't know the, the proper wording. You probably have it. Mm-hmm. I, I was quite skeptical of that claim for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, I can get into it if you want, but I thought there's almost no chance he's going to be the guy to do this based upon the fact that previous Republican candidates haven't turned out to do this thing. And now he, who's by at least a lot of measures, has never been a um, social conservative, if you want to call it that, or you know, whatever the term is, is going to do it. How surprised were you that he pulled that off, that he actually followed through on that promise? Well, I mean, he was lucky, I think is one way to put it, right? I mean, he had, he was, he was, so he did follow through on the promise, but it also wasn't like, I mean, he he cannot, he he got lucky too, because he got to nominate three Supreme Court justices and I think he also was working from a playbook with the conservative legal movement that um, would have more likely led to the selection of justices who would reverse Roe. So I, I already talked about how the culture of Supreme Court justice nominations changed. It used to be that 
you know, the priority that, say, like Ronald Reagan would have had would have been to get somebody actually confirmed, right? It wouldn't have been um, necessarily to pick the the nominee who's going to, you know, energize the base the most. And that that wasn't Trump. Trump was very much a like, I'm here to turn out the base to energize people who already agree with me. And if I offend a lot of other people, then that's, you know, that's probably like a bonus, <laughs> or at least it's not a problem. Um, and so I think Trump was lucky to have those three nominations. I don't think people necessarily knew he was going to have all three. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was not planned, obviously. And he was, um, I think, not because he he was doing this, but I think because the conservative legal movement and social conservatives have changed how they approach the Supreme Court. He was willing to listen to that. I think it dovetailed with his own kind of political strategy, which, again, was not to not to reach out to voters who didn't like him, but to just, you know, uh, excite the voters who were willing to to vote for him. So I think all of that worked out for him. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I, I wasn't super surprised because the, the strategy was in place for a Republican president to do that. But um, it w- there was also nothing kind of inevitable about it. Like he had a lot of luck that made it possible. He had the luck, but I mean, I would suspect that conservatives would be upset at George W. Bush's um, Supreme Court. And so it's it, so he has the luck, but he also was able to to pick. So are you saying from like Bush to Trump, something the conservatives were doing improved to allow them to increase the odds that if they did pick a candidate, it would work out this way or. Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think, I think you, you see the dynamic between Republican presidents and, and uh, social movements on Supreme court nominees changing. And you, you said point of George Hill, wish like Harriet Myers was a good example of that because I think, you know, president Bush trusted Harriet Myers. She was his confidant. She thought he would be, a, he thought she would be a really good justice but you then got this tremendous pushback from conservative movements, essentially saying, you know, she not just that she wasn't qualified, but that she wasn't like she was too much of a of a question mark. Like people didn't know what she would do with something like Roe v. Wade. And eventually he had to withdraw her. And of course, the person he picked to replace her was Samuel Alito, who was the judge who wrote the opinion in Dobbs. Right. So I think that that was kind of a moment where the new order began to become visible and you began to see, you know, presidents essentially just looking to conservative movements for judicial candidates instead of picking people they liked or people they thought would be advantageous to them, whether that was, you know, judicially, politically or otherwise. And, I, you know, I wouldn't I mean, Alito is from the standpoint of conservatives, probably pretty good. Right. I mean, he he's he and Justice Thomas are the most conservative on the court and of Trump's nominees. I mean, Justice Gorsuch is votes with Justices Thomas and Alito fairly often, but he also isn't, I, I, he's just not as consistently to the right on absolutely everything as Thomas and Alito. So I would, I would think conservatives would feel, you know, mixed. <laughs> they, they don't like Chief Justice Roberts, but I think they quite like Justice Alito, or they should anyway. I mean, Justice Alito being arguably, the, you know, the most or second most conservative justice on the court. Yeah, I remember, I don't know, three or four years ago, Gorsuch and uh uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, were on the dissenting view on an issue of double jeopardy, and I remember mm-hmm. reading this, going, "Okay, uh, they're, they're, they're both." I mean, from my perspective, they're both right. <laughs> you know, uh, all you other quote conservatives and, and and progressives, and you know, all this other stuff about you know rights and stuff. Like, okay, I mean, this, there's some case about some guy in Alabama he's trying to avoid mm-hmm. double jeopardy, and so you might be familiar with that. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I am. 
Okay. Well, well okay. Then, then, then unpack the, the case at a high level for us, because to me, um, it seems to be a travesty. I don't, and just to be clear, my perspective is I don't necessarily care what the law says on some level, um, because I think that the, it's, I think it's got to be careful to say, well, there's a precedent set, so therefore we follow it. Um, so for me, being acquitted at one level and then being able to be tried by a different part of the government seems to be um, a travesty. But I'm, you're the historian, so please, please unpack it for us then. Yeah. So um, essentially, the, the question was whether criminal defendants could be prosecuted for the same thing in uh, state and federal court. Um, and Justice Alito, you know, as I just mentioned, um, said there wasn't any reason to say no, right, and that there were 170 years of past precedent that allowed for separate prosecutions. So that sounds weird because the Constitution's double, double jeopardy clause generally says you can't prosecute someone for the same thing twice. But historically, the Supreme Court made an exception by saying essentially that the federal government and the states are independent sovereigns. And so separate prosecutions can be allowed in state and federal court. And the, the case in, in this particular case involved a man named Terrence Gamble, who was prosecuted for having a gun, be, basically being a, a felon with a firearm in state court. And then um, federal prosecutors then, you know, basically prosecuted him for the same thing, which um, ended up with him having, you know, pretty close to you know, the state charge, I think, was a year in prison. The uh, federal charge was 46 months in prison, which, if you do the math, is actually pretty long. And the, the two terms were going to run concurrently. And he said that was unconstitutional. Um, Justice Alito, for the majority, basically said, you know, we're not going to overrule precedent. There's not enough, you know, reason to do that, which is funny because, of course, you know, Justice Alito is totally cool with overruling precedent, as we know, at times, but not in this case. And then Justice Ginsburg and Justice um, Thomas and Gorsuch, uh, I think, actually, I don't remember if Justice Thomas joined them, but I think it was just um, those two. I, I could be wrong. I think it was. It was. Yeah, you're right. It was just Justice Gorsuch and Ginsburg essentially said that e even though there was precedent that th there was um, more than enough reason to look at whether the exception makes sense anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you do get those, I think. Um, you do get uh, some um, some kind of uh, unusual outcomes with Justice Gorsuch. Um, less, I mean, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas. Like, I can't think of a time when they, you know, like, and I think they're they're the people who may be driving. Um, actually, yeah, what I was thinking with Justice Thomas just briefly is he filed a concurring opinion. So it was just Ginsburg and Gorsuch who dissented. But Justice Thomas did have some sort of, I think, doubts too, which is interesting. But um, I think generally, uh, they're the most consistently conservative in a way that you would say probably Justice Sotomayor um, has been the most consistently progressive. Um, and uh, Justice um, Jackson, who's relatively new, I don't think we have enough data points to really say where she falls yet. Yeah, I think that's just a good example of, you know, if I said those two names agreed on an issue, I suspect most people wouldn't wouldn't be able to guess what it was. I, I certainly would have. I just happened to stumble across it. Um, it. It should give you pause, though, to go, OK, hmm. I mean, I think they're I think the dissent is right there, of course, for, for a lot of reasons. Um as a non-scholar, of course, but 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 
what happens, it seems, on these decisions, whether it's Roe v. Wade or this one or whatever, whatever it is, is that the American people don't really have a hierarchy of ethics or how we view, how we, how we think about these things. And a lot of it's driven by the Republican justice voted on issue X. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, we don't really know about it, but he's Republican. So therefore that's right. Um, and then something like a, a abortion, obviously it's a little bit, it's a little bit more black and white, like, you know, what side should they vote on? Um, but it seems that the justices also can shape how the, how the population thinks about things because they were appointed by a Republican or a Democrat, and so therefore how they vote is probably how you should feel. And so that's kind of a weird dynamic, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think that also how how things are done um, matters. So everyone, you know, I think people, a lot of conservatives were more angry about Roe than they would have been, in part because the court sort of didn't take arguments about fetal personhood seriously. And that was yeah. something that was very offensive to a lot of Christians. And I think the Dobbs opinion, like if if you had asked me to pick a conservative justice to write Dobbs so as to minimize how angry it was going to make progressives, like quite literally the last person I would have picked would have been Justice Alito. This is just like a terrible idea because there's a lot of like he literally takes what progressives think is the best arguments for abortion rights and says it's stupid in a single paragraph by just saying it's foreclosed by precedent. Like that's not what you want in an opinion like that, right? You want some kind of empathy and taking serious the other side's view, even if you think it's wrong. That's precisely what conservatives didn't like about Roe, because they said this is not written by people who respect us or who see us or who understand us. And the same thing, I think, happened with Dobbs. So it's it's not just kind of people cheering for their own partisan side. I think the justices themselves can make, you know, can make things better or worse by, you know, suggesting at least that they've given everybody like a serious hearing, you know, that they're, they're, they are taking all of this seriously and they are thinking all of it through and they're respecting everybody, even if they don't agree with them. And I think sometimes the justices themselves, not all of them, but I think some of them get caught up in the partisanship too. Um, and don't, don't do that. Right. Don't sort of see their, themselves as having to give the reasoned kind of respectful explanations they're supposed to give. So there, there, there are some justices who are, I think, quite good at this and some justices who I think are, don't really, you know, <laughs> don't feel like they have to be um, sure. so much. Okay. So you mentioned, um, I think the term you use was fetal personhood mm-hmm. and, and okay. So earlier you said that um, you're not sure, I think is how you said, or I'll let you rephrase if I get it wrong, but basically that scholars and historians debate the meaning of the Second Amendment still in 2023. It's not entirely clear to you that, that the justices could be the right person to interpret that because they're not scholars, historians. They can't study it at length like someone like you can. Uh, is that is that mm-hmm. roughly close? Okay. So that question then leads to this issue, which is can the justices determine whether or not, um, A, they should take seriously the issue of fetal personhood, and then B, can they make the determination of whether that person has rights, uh, when they have rights, stuff like that? What would be different about this issue um, than it would be the Second Amendment? And their ability yeah, to I mean, it's, it, in theory, the justice is, you know, it's a legal question, right? Whether the word person. So, I mean, just briefly, because not everybody knows what this means, right? The The basic premise, and this goes back to the. Like before, way, way before the pro-life movement cared about Roe v. Wade, the kind of motivating argument for the movement 
came in the 60s when states were starting to reform abortion laws. So, for example, they were allowing for things like rape and incest exceptions. And some people who are pro-life were like, no, 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 this isn't okay because abortion itself, legal abortion, is unconstitutional because it violates the rights of the unborn child. And the argument was that the word person in parts of the Constitution, especially the 14th Amendment, which talks about due process and equal protection, applies you know, to anybody, any human being from the moment of conception. And that's really been kind of the co- main constitutional motivation for people who identify as pro-life, I think, ever since, really. Um, and so there's nothing really that's a, a legal question, right? I mean, the court could determine that that's what the word person means, Um, You know, do I think it's easy to look at history and get an answer to that question? Um, No, I I don't. I mean, I think um, unsurprisingly, right, the folks who wrote the 14th Amendment were not focusing really on abortion. Um, They were focusing on the rights of free people of color. And at the time, um, as Justice Alito and others have said, states were criminalizing abortion. But for a variety of reasons, the movement to criminalize abortion at the time was not really thinking of itself as a constitutional movement. And it wasn't talking about the 14th Amendment. And the reason for that, I think, in part was just because at the time, the people who were um, criminalizing abortion were divided about questions of slavery and race, right? So talking about the 14th Amendment wouldn't have worked very well when the people in the, the, the movement didn't agree on whether the 14th Amendment was a good or a bad thing. Um, so you have a situation where, you know, you'll get pro-life people saying, well, you know, people at the time understood the word person to apply before as well as after birth. You get other some other conservatives and some progressives saying, you know, just the history isn't clear enough. Right. That it the best to the best of their knowledge, just people weren't thinking about it at all. And so to look at that and say all abortions are unconstitutional everywhere seems like too much of a reach. And their 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 other concern, I think, is just almost like a state's rights concern that if you're going to say, you know, you don't get to have any say over this in California or New York either, you ha- you should probably have a clearer historical argument than the one we have here. But again, it's going to be kind of boiled down again to what the court thinks the historical record at the time has to say about what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought. And you're, you're going to get, by the way, you're going to get progressives saying the framers of the 14th Amendment thought, you know, or the 13th Amendment, which is probably now the go-to thing, are going to think, are going to say that they're, they actually thought there was a right to abortion because people at the time were worried about enslaved women forced to have children against their will. And I don't think that's very clear either, right? But I think that you're going to get both sides saying the historical record is like super crystal clear and therefore everybody, all there has to be a single solution that is imposed on everyone. And then you'll get other scholars saying, well, wait, the history's not, isn't that tidy. And so the court should probably just stay out of it and instead of saying, you know, there's going to be, if you will, a, no, a new Roe v. Wade for the right or a new Roe v. Wade for the left, where the, the thing gets taken away from the states again. But it wasn't it already taken away from the states by the previous Roe v. Wade ru- ruling? So oh, yeah, yeah, that- totally. It just okay. it just would be a version of that. It'd either be, again, a progressive version of that with a different constitutional foundation right. or a conservative version of that where the court says, you know, you can't allow abortion 
if you want to, right? Like in a right. state like California, which is what I meant by a Roe v. Wade of the right, where you know, you. The, court is, the court is sort of purporting to settle it for everybody. And maybe I'm mixing legal metaphors here, but going back to the the double jeopardy case, to me, that's why a case like that is important because if you wanted to say, um, you know, to tease this abortion thing out, maybe um, hypothetically, um, it's, um, I make sure I get this right, it's, illegal in california but it's legal at the federal level i guess maybe the way to put it um and so california or vice versa i guess it'd be dual legal anyways where the state would the state would um try you not convict you and the, the feds would come and try and convict you so understanding where the intersection of the fed power and the state power is does seem to be something that we should be concerned about working out whether it's an abortion issue or gun charge or, or what it might be um who is the sovereign that's actually offended? And I've got a whole thought process on who's actually the, the victim and all this stuff. Anyways, who is the who is the person that's actually the the offended party and who can come after a, a criminal is something that seems to be we need to tease out more. Is there a discussion about that because of this ruling or other rulings, uh, maybe some of the, the COVID rulings, or is this kind of in the background of the scholastic thought right now? No, I mean, I think it definitely is, right? Because um, on, on, a lot, on a lot of different levels, right? So you're starting to see some conservatives passing like local ordinances banning abortion. And then that gets into the question of like, can they do that? And then you're having conservatives saying, pointing to this 19th century law called the Comstock Act, which banned the mailing of, um, you know, birth control, abortion stuff, and, uh, and also like a whole bunch of books. And the conservatives are saying, well, this part of the Comstock Act about any article intended or adapted for abortion has never been repealed. So actually, it should apply to say, you know, states can't allow abortion. And then you have, you know, other people saying, well, that's not what the Comstock Act says, or, you know, whatever. But there are all these fights about, you know, is it state government, local government, federal government? Um, is it a situation where we should be looking at these old laws that no one knows exists? Or should we be looking, should we be basically be saying, these sovereigns need to pass new laws, you know, essentially ask voters what they think today. Um, so there's there's a lot of different um, debates about power at, at different levels of government um, that you see cropping up around this now. Yeah, it, it seems from during COVID that it became, to me at least, um, apparent, I would say, it's not sure who has authority where, you know, so mm -hmm. this group says you can't meet, um, the other group says you can meet, this court says you can't, this person won't enforce it. So it was kind of like yeah. watching that unfold going, I'm not sure who's actually in charge of any of this because everyone's got these opinions and you just kind of seem to side with the person who agrees with your side. But at the end of the day, I mean, in Texas, for instance, there was Abbott put out this executive order. Um, this was early on. And then this lady, uh, I can't remember her name. She's a barber. Uh, she went to work to defy the order. Um, a judge, they, they, they arrested her, put her in jail for a day or two. Abbott came out like, oh, my goodness, how could they do this? It's like, well, your order kind of gave them the power to, but whatever. Then they get the, girl, the, the lady out. And so then it's like, well, and then and then later on, as we went along, then some of the sheriffs across the, the state were like, yeah, we're not going to listen to what the governor says. We're going to do our own thing. And, and then you see school boards and. I would just sit back going, hmm, do we actually know in our country how the power structure works and who's in charge when? Do we do we actually know that? Or is it just kind of dependent upon us kind of going along with it? And as long as we don't question the system, it works. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is a lot. And I mean, the other thing, of course, right, is that sometimes the answer isn't clear and then people are going to fight about it. Right. Um, And I think that's that's something that you see happening a lot, too. And, And also the other thing, of course, is like people are not consistent about this. Right. Like if you, you know, put someone in a time machine and brought them from like 1980 something to now, you know, you would say, well, conservatives are always going to be for, you know, kind of federalism, right? Like devolution of power from the federal to state or local government. And sometimes that's true. Like maybe that was true with COVID, right? But then, you know, with abortion, you hear some conservatives saying we want a national ban or we want the Comstock Act or whatever. They don't want federalism. So I think that also complicates it, that there's no, no one seems to have, not no one, but like a lot of people are inconsistent about it, right? Where they're, they're for- more federal power or less federal power depending on what the issue is and that doesn't help right because there's no one who's there are not enough people who are actually saying you know maybe more state power is just a good thing period right and it's a good thing when i don't agree with you or when i do agree with you like and 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 i think of course there's there's sort of golden rule element of that Mm -hmm. right i think so just to take an abortion example one thing that's on the table is like if a state like texas is going to say okay you know if you go from Texas to California to get an abortion, we're going to try to prosecute the doctor from California. And then you see states from California saying, like California saying, well, you know, if you try to extradite our doctor, we're not going to comply with the extradition request. And one of the reasons that should make everyone in that equation uncomfortable is if the rules were reversed, no one would like it, right? No one in Texas would like it if California was like, we're going to pass a law on guns. And if someone from Texas doesn't comply with it, we're going to prosecute them, even though what they did was legal in Texas. And Texans would be like, no way, that's, you know, I picked to live in Texas maybe because of that. So I I think that it's good to remember that, that if you think of yourself as someone who likes states' rights, you should try to say, I'm going to stick to that, even when, you know, the answer I'm getting from that is not one that aligns with my policy preferences. But I think that's part of why we're in this mess with some of these power questions, because, people are, especially politicians, but other people too, are not being consistent, right? They're sort of just saying, depends on what I think about the issue and not, they're not thinking seriously about how power is actually allocated. Okay. Um, The new book is Roe, the History of a National Obsession. We talked about some, not enough, sorry. I find all these topics so fascinating. And so I kind of, kind of, I won't say I nerded out. I'm not smart enough to nerd out on this topic, but I was trying to, trying to pick it, but it was, it was a enjoyable conversation. Thank you for coming on and, and talking about this issue. And, you know, one of the things on this show, we, 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 the drum I try to beat is that we don't always have to kill each other to talk about these issues. And so um, it was great to have you on Uh, best of luck on the book and, I know it just came out, what, um, three weeks, two weeks ago, right? At the time mm-hmm. of this recording. But I always have to ask, do you have a new project coming up, something you're working on, something we can... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually working on a history of um, of the personhood movement, um, because mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, was interesting to me just is that, <laughs> well, a lot of people, a lot of people who are, who are pro-life know they're for personhood, but they don't know why and they don't know the history. And then a lot of other people don't know what personhood is. And then the more I dug into it, the more I realized that people hadn't meant the same thing by it over time. And so I think if this is kind of like the next chapter of struggles over abortion, it's really important to look at the history of this and sort of see, you know, what could it mean? What has it meant? What should it mean? And and so I'm I'm working on that history now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and would love to get you back on to discuss that book when it comes out. 
Okay. Yeah. Thanks. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at war 